Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by video games broadcaster and co-host of the Video Games Changed My Life podcast, Julia Hardy. Hello, Julia. Hi. A lot of people know you from your presenting work, Julia. I've seen you on you know, some very prestigious events in the games world, BAFTA, E3, and, and on the, the BBC doing the, the video game show. How did this start for you? How did you get into presenting? Uh, it's very convoluted and a lot to do with luck and just weird. Th- okay, right. Let me try and explain how sliding doorsy this is. All right. <laughs> It's best way to say. I entered a competition for PlayStation, uh, and they were looking for vloggers for like a summer, uh, and we all competed against each other, and then we voted, and then we won, and anyway, whatever. Right. So I spent this whole summer vlogging, and I decided that I wanted to do like a stupid little comedy skit, which was like a kind of like a net fake MTV show where we were talking to the the man behind the special effects for the Fantastic Four, which was my friend Paul, who looked like a really budget Phineas Fogg because we gave him like a beard and moustache made out of cotton wool. Anyway, so I kind of, I I made it a bit like a TV show. I was like, hey, my name is Julia. This is behind the camera. We're going to go meet the special effects guy from the Fantastic Four to find out how he does it. And then we just messed around and stuck cornflakes on my friend's face because he was a thing and pretended to set fire to someone. You know, the usual stuff. This is how convoluted it is. A couple of weeks later, my friend Paul, a la Phineas Fogg with the cotton wool moustache, goes to the doctor's and he ends up getting chatting to this guy who's setting up this music channel called Rock World and they were looking for presenters. So because I just we just made this really stupid thing where I was pretending to be a presenter, he was like, oh, my friend Julia would be really good at that and gave this guy my number. He called me. Maybe like a week later, I went to this audition. Ah, actually, it's got a kind of tenuous film link in a way. The night before I went to this audition, I was like, I bet you they're going to put me, I've never done any presenting before. I bet you they're just going to say like, just talk about something. And I'm going to stand there like an idiot, not knowing what to say. And I'd watched, oh, what was that Mark Mode thing? Was it Videodrome? Really old school, like film, TV show. Anyway, I'd watched Videodrome that day or that night. And he was talking about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. (laughs) So I turned up this audition the next day. And I do a little piece to camera or whatever. And then they're like, oh, just, you know, talk about anything. I just stole all of Mark Commode's thoughts and ideas and presented them as my own. So thanks, Mark. And just sort of like went blah, blah, <laughs> and said all this, like this stuff about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Bearing in mind, this was kind of like a gothy rock channel. So it sort of made sense. And then, yeah, I got the job. And this was, um, oh my God, a million years ago. And at that channel, uh, we would basically interview bands. So I interviewed like, oh God, hundreds of bands. And we'd package up like their live footage with interviews and stuff. And then they wanted to do a review show and I was really into film and cinema and video games. So I made like this little review show that was about like the latest kind of movies and stuff. Lots of Tartan Asia Extreme. In fact, that was like 99% of everything we talked about. And video games, that was the first step into like reviewing stuff. And that's kind of how it started, really. And I think about this all the time in that if my friend Paul hadn't gone to the doctor's surgery or had gone like an hour later, I wouldn't be doing this. Isn't that mad? Oh my God, that is crazy. It's a proper sliding doors uh, moment, wow. and I hate that movie, <laughs> but I can't think of a better way of saying it. <laughs> so, it, yeah, I mean, it just sort of happened. But I guess through through it happening, you did get to 
get to your sort of core passion. Over the years, we've seen you uh, present you know a whole number of you know games uh, shows and events. It still feels like it's it's one of the sort of art forms which doesn't get the coverage it deserves, considering, as you say, everybody is a gamer. It makes as much money as the film industry. Um, actually, more. Sorry, sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but has been more for quite quite some time. But but we just don't we don't see the coverage in, in sort of mainstream places really. I think you know seeing what you were doing with the gaming show that was like the only game show on the BBC at the time when I was watching that. Yeah, and it's like I just it I, it baffled me. Welcome to my entire career frustration for like the past ten years. <laughs> it's been um yeah it's been it is really frustrating like knowing knowing how popular gaming is and still having these like stupid conversations i mean i i'd go and pitch like different game you know people be like why don't you pitch some like tv game shows and like you know it's like i have been people just don't they just don't want to do it they don't want to take the risk and you'd go in and meet like someone from like a channel or like a production company and they'd say things like oh no one wants to watch people playing games and you'd be like sure uh have you been on the internet all right and then like yeah. 20 <laughs> minutes later they'll talk about how their kid just consumes Minecraft content and you're like, well, you've just literally contradicted yourself in this, in this meeting. I, find, I still find it very frustrating. I still think there's um, a lot of people who think that gamers are like losers in their bedrooms or, you know, nerds covered in crisps or whatever. So I think actually lockdown's going to really change a lot of people's perspectives. Because we're stuck inside, people are going to realise that gaming isn't just about shooting people. There is a whole breadth. It's as, as diverse as cinema. It's as diverse as music uh, in the terms of light and shade and stories and different experiences that you can have. Your latest BBC gig is Video Games Changed My Life, a podcast on BBC Sounds, yes. co-presented with the amazing Ava Wilson. That series is incredible. I'm, I'm really loving it. Aoife and I have known each other for a very, very long time. And we were approached about making sort of like a potential, you know, gaming podcast. It was a very, very kind of long process to get to the point where we are with This Game Changed My Life. It was maybe about a year of piloting and ch trying out different stuff, which, I mean, the BBC, it's a kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a slow turning, like giant behemoth a little bit, you know, it goes in the right direction, but it's never quite as fast as you want things to be. But to be honest with you, with uh, a podcast like this, and, and as I've told you, it's really difficult to kind of get anything commissioned we wanted to kind of take that time to make sure that it was right. Because there's this tendency sometimes when people commission gaming things where they just commission stuff and they sort of just try it and then it doesn't work. And then they're like, oh, we tried gaming. I mean, it's like saying, hey, we tried doing something about film or we did a sport and that's and sport <laughs> didn't work. So we're not going to do sport again. So we were very, and yeah, we've had, we've both had this happen to us. So we were very careful about making sure that the premise of the podcast was absolutely spot on before we kind of got to that stage where we started making full episodes. And yeah, it took a year, but I'm so glad that we spent that time doing that. It's very short, it's succinct, it's to the point. Each episode is a, a fantastic story about how a video game has fundamentally changed someone's life forever. And whether that's through playing the game or making the game or experiencing the game in some way that's just cause like this kind of seismic shift in their life and you know we've had um so a, a gentleman who escaped syria and got stuck in an oil barrel and dragged across a river horrific and made a video game about that experience we got interviewed charlie brooker that was great and that was just more just because we wanted to interview charlie brooker you know having worked in the industry for a long time Aoife and i you know have heard a lot of stories but even we were kind of surprised at just the, the breadth and the diversity of the stories that we found. I mean, we knew video games changed people's lives. They changed our lives. 
But, you know, the stories that we found are kind of quite jaw-dropping. You clearly play a lot of games, and I know you like to watch films, but does runtime ever come into your decision-making process when choosing what to watch? Only if it's like over two hours. I'm sorry, but like no movie needs to be, you know. The only movie I've watched that's that long is Barry Lyndon. Don't know why. It's quite a good hangover movie. It's really quiet. I mean, most of it is just because Kubrick starts on this massive wide shot and it takes him 10 minutes to like zoom in. And if you're really hungover, you're like, it's cool. I don't have to think about anything anymore. I'm just going to look at this picture. So, Julia, what film did you choose for us today? So the film that I chose today is Paris is Burning. It's a documentary shot by uh, Jenny Livingston, which was shot in kind of like the mid 80s. I think it came out actually in 1990, but it was shot during the kind of mid 80s. And um, it's all about all culture in uh, New York City. A lot of you guys out there have probably seen Pose or, you know, watch RuPaul's Drag Race. Pose is kind of like the sort of dramatic version of what is set up in Paris is Burning. Half of everything they say in RuPaul's Drag Race are direct quotes from this from this uh, documentary before moving on i'm just going to read the back of the dvd the very lovely criterion edition of this film where does voguing come from and what exactly is throwing shade this landmark documentary provides a vibrant snapshot of the 1980s through the eyes of new york city's african-american and latinx harlem drag ball scene Made over seven years, Paris is Burning offers an intimate portrait of rival fashion houses, from fierce contests for trophies to house mothers offering sustenance in a world rampant with homophobia, transphobia, racism, AIDS and poverty. Featuring legendary voguers, drag queens and trans women, including Willie Ninja, Pepper Labasia, Dorian Corey and Venus Extravaganza, Paris is Burning brings it celebrating the joy of movement, the force of eloquence, and the draw of community. Julia, why did you choose Paris is Burning? The reason why I chose it was I studied photography and one of my favourite photographers was a woman called Diane Arbus, who was like this New York photographer. She was really, really fascinated with kind of the stuff that never was really photographed. I suppose like a modern day kind of Vermeer, you know, like the, the, the people, the kind of quote unquote like subclasses or you know people who were sort of hidden away things that you would never normally kind of see and she directly kind of went out and sought sought to kind of take those images and befriended people and became part of different smaller communities and something about Paris is Burning really reminds me of all of this you know Jenny uh, Livingston goes into these places she had this incredible access to this huge community this massive like subculture that I had never heard anything about I never understood anything about and to kind of see it and just the 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 way that she handles it and the way that she's involved within that world I mean there's questions about her white privilege and people weren't paid and things like that like later on although really in documentaries I don't do things people are supposed to be paid but but being kind of fully allowed access into those worlds to show this it's this postcard of history Mm. this detailed you know, 6K postcard, 8K postcard of history, of you would never know anything. It's like a a moment of time that would never be shown anywhere, that you would never see and would have just disappeared into nothing and be forgotten about. And yet she captured it in such a way to show kind of the, the heart of the people and why they do it without 
without looking at it in the same way Deanne Arbus would, without looking at it like, oh, hey, just like, lol, look at these freaks, you know, there's men dressing up as women in drag and like there's these, you know, these poor, um, you know, people of color pretending that they're executives. Um, look at that, lol, it's not about that. She looks fully into why, why they're doing it why it was necessary like socially and like within the world of the 1980s like what was going on at that time to sort of pull people towards this kind of uh this this environment and this community and also looking at the different houses that were created you know that became families for these you know young uh, lgbtq you know plus young people who have been thrown out by their families and and there is allusions allusions to the violence that they that they faced uh, especially like trans violence uh, within this documentary. And you forget, like, it's all during the whole time. There, there's so many layers. You know, it's during the full kind of AIDS mm. epidemic and all of that, where, you know, gay people were being uh, ostracized and dying without, yeah, just, there is so kind of much going on within it of this this moment in time. And to have that access, to talk to all these people so frankly and so personally about why this ball culture was important and why having safe spaces was important and how it changed their lives. It's, it's just, it's one of the most mind blowing documentaries ever because it's, it's, it, it doesn't kind of just skirt over the top and be like, well, and, 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 and add a voice into it. Like you never really hear her voice apart from what she shoots. Uh, they are all free to tell their own versions of the story and it just gives it so much depth there is so much happening in this short, short, short documentary. It's it's a whole lifetime. But I think you sort of need to. A lot of times when we do what's the film about, you know, a uh, person wants to go here and has to overcome this sort of challenge and hooray. But Paris is Burning is like a layered, like say postcard, I think is a really good way to capsulize it because it could only have been made in the late 80s to get this sort of story. And it could only have been made talking to these people. And there are so many amazing people in the film. And it's it's this snapshot of everybody's perspective. And I think because of the culture, it's different people and different what is called houses coming together for the ball. And the film is kind of like the audience's ball where we get to see everybody coming together and we get to learn these amazing stories. Yeah. And, and you think about everything that's going on, you know, uh, during that time, you know, you've got, um, you know, people of color who were like, uh, everyone sold the American dream, right? And, and to be honest with you, this is still even true of today. You know, this idea of the American dream when it's a rigged system, right? Only certain people can win at that game but everybody sold this idea that they can win and everyone buys into this bullshit and it's just impossible because the game is rigged it's designed for some people to lose and what i was thinking about this today was just how it really hasn't changed from uh, kind of the mid 80s and you know you've got these uh, people who were given no opportunity they've got nowhere to go come with the fact that you know they're they're gay or that they're trans so not only are they poor and from like the wrong kind of race or whatever for you know perceived from the outside you know they're also they've got so many things to fight against and you think about the decadence of the 80s you know these incredibly white skinned affluent you know fur coats hairspray just decadence money 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 everywhere there's money apart from like everybody else where there's no money just that kind of that juxtaposition of those two things was just you know, it's a horrendous thing to kind of see kind of like firsthand. And this, and there's just, um, there's just so many stories and different things going on. And, and like when they talk about all the different characters within the doc, they talk about what they want of life. And you can see that they, 
that they understand the American dream and they want that American dream for themselves. But, you know, like they want to be famous, they want to be a movie star, they want to be models, they want to kind of do all these kind of different things. They still want that same dream that everybody else kind of wants, but they've got so much to fight against, so much more to overcome than they could ever possibly kind of imagine, really. Here's the other thing as well, though. Bearing in mind that you think about, um, okay, as a, as a bi person, like I, I never really thought about any of these things kind of growing up. I kind of was always, you know, like my, my best friend was gay. I always hung out with a load of guys. So it never really became so much more prevalent that I was bi. It wasn't like suddenly like I fell in love with my best friend. I didn't have any best friends who were girls or things like that. And I was fairly kind of open-minded about a lot of stuff. I mean, I went raving from really early ages, from like 15 and me and my mates used to go to like weird things like Torture Garden and like Brixton at really young ages. And, you know, so like my eyes were kind of open to sort of like all these different things. And I never really thought anything of it. I was just like, well, it was just how it is, isn't it? It never, I never thought it was an issue anywhere because I'd just been kind of always surrounded by it, you know. But you watch this documentary and and especially for trans people, the, 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 violent, the, the potential violence and the, the fear of you know, uh, reprisal from just random people in the street was kind of like, it's the mid eighties, you know, people still get that stuff now, right? But this was, I mean, you're, you're talking about um, like uh, the one girl, Venus, who, you know, sadly actually you find out during the course of the documentary was murdered by someone. And you think, Jesus, to, to put yourself out there and for her to be so openly like, right, I'm trans and this is what I'm doing. And she lived her life in that way, like open and free. But ultimately it led to her demise because she was, and just to think about that being a kind of fairly standardish story is kind of, pretty terrifying to to say okay as a as a as a bi woman to go out there and to express that could lead ultimately to people being violent towards you i mean it wouldn't even you're like okay yes we have prejudice uh, towards us or whatever but it's physical violence i mean literally people would throw things or beat you up or I can't even imagine. And the bravery that that would take to be able to do that, to say that, and to be involved in a documentary and just be like, right, this is me, this is who I am. Uh, it's just like, honestly, the, the people involved who were like living their life in that way is just, wow. That's, that's like some degree of bravery that uh, I think, you know, we've never really had to challenge ourselves on in this day and age. I think we're incredibly lucky. It's those intimate one-on-one -on -one interviews that Jenny gets in between the footage of the ball where people are so open with her. But I think because she embedded herself in this in this world for such a long time, it was shot over seven years. So people knew her. It was like, oh, Jenny's coming over. I can be, talk really honestly to the camera. And for us as audiences, like we're, we, we get so much from, from how unguarded these people feel they can be with the camera. Yeah. And they just talk, you know, like say really nonchalantly, you know, it's scary this could happen to me and they know it, but they still absolutely have to do this thing because that's them. Yeah. And that's why this film is such a gift, I think. I was always quite fascinated when studying photography about the kind of heyday of sort of magnum and life photography, you know, W. Eugene Smith and off he goes for like six months to hang out with a doctor in like a field somewhere and <clears throat> stays there for six months and then, you know, posts the story later. And I was like, I, quite, I like the idea of being embedded somewhere. But unfortunately, <laughs> by the time I got around to photography, 
no one's going to pay you to go for like six months to like, you know, waffle off. It's like, turn up, take your pictures, file them later. You know, that kind of, that, that kind of glamorous abilities is sort of like fully in bed somewhere and kind of gone. But I think, yeah, you're right. The fact that she, I think she'd like taken photographs for a long time before that, I think, or something. And then it sort of led to kind of doing the documentary and having that sort of access and having that sort of, yeah, having that trust is, is so important. And, and if anyone else had kind of come from the outside, would they ever have got half of the things that, that she managed to, to get out of them, you know? And, and I think, you know, there is something really missing with just rocking up with a camera. And you have to, I think as an interview, you have to be a bit more, I don't know, antagonistic or aggressive in a way to sort of get the sound bites that you need. I think if I could just be on TV or a film or anything, I do that instead of the money. Of course, I do want the money because I want the luxury that goes with it. But I want to be wealthy. If not wealthy, content, comfortable. You know? I want to be somebody. I mean, I am somebody. I just want to be a rich somebody. There's like a fascinating story behind this film as well, because it, like all good things, it sort of happened by accident. And Jenny found these people. She overheard some people on the street and was like, oh, this is interesting. And that's where the story began. But it started out with taking photos and then doing audio recordings, uh, late 80s version of podcasting, uh, just recording on a tape player and uh, and then starting to film different bits. And, and that's why it took so long to make, because she's constantly applying for funding for different people we need to film a ball now i need money to film a ball yeah i think like 10 different production companies are involved in making this film eventually wow that's a lot that's a, that's a sheer like labor of a labor of love and and sadly really because of obviously uh, everything that happened you know was going on in the 1980s with kind of the aids epidemic and stuff like that but there is really no one i don't think there's anyone left who was actually in the movie he who's now alive i think everyone died quite quite young really it's sort of quite sad really testament of um of the time that's hugely sobering because it, on camera they're so full of life and and it's it's just authentic you know it, it feels like such a real sort of experience going through this this film and all in this incredibly tight runtime which is like the other sort of like factor which is just mind-blowing yeah i mean it's so much happens in basically an hour it's 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 crazy yeah. it's actually crazy how much they get out but then i think i think some of it is you know, it has to be to do with the fact that she'd spent so much time with them because when the, the pieces where they're talking about, they're very reflective and they do tend to get very to the point. Or even if, if it's just, you know, like the questions that she's asking or something, it's just, it's not like six shots of different bits of content sewn together. It, they all look like the same conversation where she's got all of the bits that she sort of needed, really, you know, like they're, they're not really switching locations so much when they're having these conversations. So it's like she almost like succinctly gets everything that she needs. Uh, absolutely. And it is, it's all framed around the structure of a, of a ball, isn't it? You know, like uh, where people are on the catwalk, they're, they're doing their category and then then the, the the sort of interviews start off by talking about one particular element and then it goes into their personal stories it's incredibly well structured and, and economical it's um it's it's interesting because when Covey talks about it like and how it originally started and how they started um making more and more wider reaching categories and how basically pretty much everyone enters a category but then i think that's that's kind of so inclusive where okay so there'd always be um a kind of category which is like you know uh, who can 
pass the most as like a female or whatever you know there's certain categories that would be there kind of like every ball but then yeah you do move into this kind of executive realness um all of these kind of different these different kind of uh, categories that seem a lot lot broader but then it means that there's something for everybody and it means that everybody can have their moment to be in the spotlight and be kind of king of the moment you know king of the room and if you have an entire community of people who are who trodden on in everyday life then they're not given any chances to be successful or to uh, to surpass or whatever they already have they're not given a moment to be praised or adored in in the the way that they quote unquote could be you know within within the kind of you know 1980s american dream and then they have that moment to walk that catwalk and to be king and to be proud and to be queens and to have that moment of being adored and seen to be seen you know and really looked at and really admired and did you feel the atmosphere in that room and how exciting it must be to walk that catwalk? Yeah. And I, th- I think like, I don't think it's all fully supportive. I think there was a lot of like drama between the houses and stuff. But when you talk about kind of the, the, the drama between the houses, uh, and I think, you know, they do have a tendency to kind of like cast shade and like be quite bitchy and the bitchiness between the houses, which is fine. But then it's all kind of done within the sort of safe space. And you sort of mentioned it there, but the, the film is responsible for lots of phrases which are sort of common parlance now, voguing, throwing shade. Uh, and I, I I came to this film having heard those in other places. Mm-hmm. And I, I sort of loved seeing how it started in this, you know, it's so like grassroots and this very organic thing which has evolved out of the 80s. Well, you know, it's, it's the same thing with all subcultures, really. You know, um, you have like something that becomes quite cool and quite fashionable. And then I think, you know, Madonna was introduced to it by one of the house extravaganza, like to voguing. And then that's how it became a thing with Madonna and stuff like that. And, you know, popular culture always takes from like these kind of other communities because pop doesn't really doesn't really have a culture of its own it just sort of tends to just mishmash everything else that's kind of going on really i guess and rupaul's drag race really has been the kind of massive catalyst i think for kind of putting it all kind of front and center i mean what we're like 12 series now but i remember when this first went on netflix this documentary actually when when rupaul went onto netflix this documentary was on there as well and i think you know things like rupaul's drag race hopefully has created more of an interest in people seeing the stock because at the time it it was awarded at you know various film festivals but it didn't really get the mainstream acceptance i think it's sort of having the second wind now definitely i think it just the supreme access and the fact that it's something that none of us ever lived through or saw with our own eyes. And yeah, it's this, this, this moment in time that we would know nothing about otherwise. And I think it's influenced so much of kind of popular culture that I think there's always going to be that natural interest to see where things come from, you know, and to understand where things come from. Hey guys, this is Kobe here from Flix Watcher Podcast. And I'm Helen, also from Flix Watcher Podcast. We are another podcast in the strip media family and we review films on Netflix. Ever struggle to find a film to watch on the Netflix? Well, we're the podcast for you and we have guests from other podcasts, big and small, and they're the ones that actually choose the films that we rate and talk about in our episodes. Like the sound of this? Find us by searching Flix Watcher, F-L-I-X Watcher, and make sure you subscribe. And if you want more information about any of the other podcasts in the Strip Media family, just visit www.stripped.media to find out more.
It sounds like this is a film that you you come back to again and again. Do you find new things when you when you come back to it? Is a you know what's what's the sort of latest thing you've noticed? I was watching a lot of the kind of reactions in the background when like some of the the house mothers are sort of talking and there's people kind of around them and I, I like kind of looking at the reactions of like everybody who's kind of behind in frame and like what they're kind of saying and how they're kind of agreeing with stuff because you always think that way in documentaries when someone's saying something out loud. Is that? True. I mean, you know, people talk about like, yeah, well, I'm really generous. Are you though? I mean, we can all say that. We can all say we have a sense of humor. It doesn't mean we have one. I, I, this time around, I was like marveling again at the size of the trophies. Some of the trophies are ridiculous. Like they're bigger than people. And you sort of think like, wow, okay. I always remember like growing up and, uh, you know, they'd have like uh, trophies and medals and stuff in like shoe repair places or whatever. Yeah. I always remember being young and being like, why would you do anything? I could just go there and buy a medal and I haven't got to be good at anything. I could just get the medal. Why wouldn't I just get the medal? Dad, why would anyone do anything? I could buy a trophy from there. I could be the champion of anything before obviously realizing it's not really the trophy that's the thing, but whatever. It's a thing you don't see anymore, like video game machines in chip shops. Uh, just don't, like you, you talk about in your podcast, but like you, I first played like Pac-Man in a fish and chip shop. Well, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have consoles till really, really late. At all, and so it was only really by going around to friends' houses or yeah, cab offices that uh, there was that kind of experience. I guess yeah. When I was researching, I found this amazing quote in the New York Times, and it was an article about twelve films kids should see before they turn thirteen, and they included *Paris Is Burning* on that list, cool. uh, which I loved. Yeah. And the writer said, uh, "By seeing Jenny Livingston's documentary as soon as possible means you can spend the rest of your life having a sense of humanity, amuse, surprise, and devastate you over and over." And I just thought it was such a good idea to show this film to you know quite young people. I think exposing young kids, like here's the problem, if you hide anything away and make it not normal, you're instantly setting your kid up to be prejudiced in later life, right? If it's like other, you know, that's us and them. That, it means that fundamentally that's, they, are, they aren't going to be able to not be slightly prejudiced or slightly racist or slightly homophobic. Like if you can make everything just fully normal right from the get-go, that's the only way you're ever going to change how things are, you know. One of the things that used to really frustrate me, I used to do this blog about sexism and misogyny and gaming, and um, one of the things that used to frustrate me most and what I realised most about it that was ultimately as frustrating as the act of sexism and misogyny towards a woman is the fact that when we would talk about our experiences, people would be like, that, well, that's not how it is, that's not how it works, and it was this disbelief that we didn't know what we were kind of talking about. And also from the, you know, the small minority of men on the other side that, that perhaps they can't possibly be sexist. And, and the problem is, is because it's, a, it's an unconscious thing, right? So if you ask yourself, did I just do something sexist? Like in the same way if I said, did I just do something racist in my head? No, because it wasn't a conscious decision. There's no thought process to follow back and say like, oh, well, yeah, I made that choice to do that thing. It's an unconscious bias. That's, that's the whole point. You don't know that it's going on. And what, yeah, one of the most frustrating things was kind of like being met with this thing that, you know, people, they couldn't fathom how maybe they don't know that it's happening. That maybe if they just held their hands up and said, actually, perhaps I am not looking at this in the right way, or perhaps I have got this kind of unconscious bias. But it was always like, no, no, I'm not doing any of these things. And it's, it's kind of being met with that that was ultimately as irritating and upsetting as the act itself. And I've always tried to 
from kind of realizing that always try to sort of say maybe I don't know maybe I am or at least be open to the fact that maybe I don't know what my head is doing you know because you don't you don't like the, the world is ultimately completely baffling and as a child you compartmentalize stuff because it's completely baffling there's too much information so you chuck things in these big wide gaping pigeonholes and then you spend the rest of your adult life taking things out of that one and putting it into a different one and kind of dissecting all the things that you assumed you know because you had to you were really small and you had to figure life out really quickly and that's understandable but then understand that you know you have to kind of pick these things back apart and I don't know. See, I'm getting way off point here. <laughs> I always had hopes of being a big star. And then I look, as you get older, you, you aim a little lower. And I just say, well, yeah, you still might make an impression. Everybody wants to leave something behind them, some impression, some mark upon the world. And then you think you left a mark on the world if you just get through it. There we have it. Paris is Burning is in the 90 minutes or less film festival, 76 minutes long, an absolute belter of a runtime. I cannot wait to screen this film at our fictional film festival. As the chooser of the film, uh, you get to add an event to the screening. We're going to get, we're going to give you a cinema and we're going to give you a copy of the film to play. But what we'd love you to do is to actually, you know, think about how we could theme the space. How can we welcome the audience into this film? I would um, ask everyone to like walk the runway to get into the cinema in like whatever way they wanted to dress. And it would be a safe space to be like, right, come as whatever version of you you want because everybody is welcome. And then have everyone walk in on like a, uh, basically like, yeah, like a, a catwalk, well, on the floor catwalk, let's not freak people out. But everyone <laughs> gets to walk the floor before they go into the cinema. And um yeah, let your freak flag fly. Do whatever you want. That sounds wonderful. A great way to get people in the mood. And after they see the film, they'll be they'll be wanting to walk out on the catwalk as well. Damn straight. And if you could invite one special guest to the screening, maybe for an introduction or a Q&A, who would you like to invite? Ooh, who would I invite? Um, oh, God, it'd have to be RuPaul. I just want to have, like, lunch with him once. I would say I'd like to have a beer with him, but he doesn't strike me like he'd have a late afternoon beer. So, I don't know, maybe some wine. Get, I'd like to get wine drunk with RuPaul, definitely. <laughs> I mean, if, if you look at, look at everything he's accomplished in his life, it's actually frigging astounding. And apparently for the TV show, the first time he pitched it, the first meeting he went to, they commissioned it. That show has really changed. Like drag queens still always used to be the butt of a joke, you know? No one respected it as an art as a way of doing things. And honestly, RuPaul has completely changed what it means to be a drag queen and, 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 and like just what it takes as well. Um, anyway, but yeah, definitely. It'd have to be RuPaul. What a guest to have at our film festival. And finally, do you think this film could or should be longer than 90 minutes? Um, no, I think, like I was saying, with the, with the access that she got, everything is incredibly succinct. I think it is it is the, the right amount of time. What I would love, though, is if we weren't, you know, so far down the timeline, would have been like 10 years later to go back and to see everyone. I would have loved to have seen like where everybody kind of like was after that. Because I think that by the time it kind of hit the, hit the spot where everybody was really interested in it, I think quite a few of the people had passed away. 
which is, a, you know, a huge shame and a huge loss. But it would be incredible to have a reflective journey back by the people who are involved in that scene uh, about what it was actually like, you know, now that they can look back. Because when you're in a scene, it's different, you know, it's the world, it's everything. Uh, and you can't really fathom what it's like outside of it because it is your normal. But, you know, with, with time and reflection comes a completely different perspective. So I would love to see something or a doc that was made about that time using, you know, the people who were actually there. I think this film you know, makes you want to learn more about all of the people that are featured. And I didn't watch it on, on this format, but the DVD label Criterion, who do very lovingly re-released sort of older films, they've done this amazing package, which has got brand new interviews uh, with Jenny Livingston, but also got some amazing archive stuff, including an episode of the Joan Rivers show from 91 with Jenny Livingston and loads of ball members featured in the film. And I would love to see that interview. Yeah, that'd be really interesting. Okay, well, this is gonna be one heck of a screening. Thank you so much for picking this film, Julia. Where can people find out uh, more about what you're up to and, and, and uh, see your work online? All of my social media is exactly the same. It's just at It's Julia Hardy. So like I-T-S Julia Hardy. So just all the usual places. Um, and then the BBC podcast is called This Game Changed My Life. Uh, it's available on BBC Sounds, uh, on uh, Spotify and Apple as well. But go to BBC Sounds, counts more. And um, I'm also, uh, I'm doing a a fitness program for gamers called Game to Train if you want to get fit uh, using video games which is just um, on Instagram which is just at Game to Train Finally uh, one what are you playing at the moment one video game recommendation Final Fantasy 7 Remake um, but I'm also playing Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild which if you haven't played it is the perfect game for lockdown because it's very long and you're going to lose yourself in it or The Witcher 3 The Wild Hunt if you want to basically those Breath of the Wild and Witcher 3, if you want a game that you can basically play until we're allowed back outside again, <laughs> just play them. Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Julia. It's been a pleasure no having problem. you on the show. I look forward to the screening of Paris is Burning. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to the show on your podcatcher of choice. And if you, like me, enjoy rating things, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're also available on 90minfilmfest.com. That's 90minfilmfest.com. You can contact us there or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The show is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. The show is edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.